We all know kids love their snacks, but finding healthy snacks with real food ingredients that won't break the bank isn't always easy. That's why I love Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. My kids love the Lara bars, seaweed snacks, and the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds. But Thrive Market is so much more than snacks. They also have organic and essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues, where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. I'm always trying to get more fruits and vegetables and real foods in my kids' diets, but between school, work, sports, and everything else we have going on, I don't have a lot of time. I need simple, easy kitchen appliances that can help me save time. And the one that I can't do without is the Vitamix. When I received it as a Christmas present a few years ago, I admit I was skeptical because I already had a blender. But the first time I used it, I was hooked. Unlike other blenders, the Vitamix blends everything up into a super smooth consistency, much like a juicer would, except you get all the nutritious fiber that regular juicers leave behind. And what I love most about the Vitamix is that it isn't just for smoothies. Every Vitamix has an entire range of textures to choose from, so you can use it to make dips and spreads, nut and seed butters, hummus and guacamole, muffins, pizza dough, plant-based milk, and frozen treats. Vitamix has been around for 70 years and all of their blenders are powerful, durable, and built to last. And they come with a full warranty. To get free shipping off any Vitamix purchase over $50, just go to my website, julierevelant.com shop and click on Vitamix. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insight to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. Most kids are picky eaters, but how do you know if your kid is an extreme picky eater? I tell parents not to look at each meal or even over the course of a day, but to look over the course of a week. That's Jenny McLaughlin, a certified speech language pathologist and co-author of Helping Your Child with Extreme Picky Eating. Jenny developed the STEPS feeding program at the Collier Center for Communication Disorders at the University of Texas at Dallas, where she works with families on a daily basis. We'll talk about what's normal for kids and how to tell if your kid is an extreme picky eater, how to take the focus off nutrition and create a positive food environment, and so much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview with Jenny McLaughlin. Welcome to the Food Issues Podcast, Jenny. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So let's dive right in. I'd love to hear your story in when and why did you become a speech language pathologist and a feeding therapist? 
So I was an undergraduate and was interested in psychology, and that was my major at the time. And But then I started learning more about it and thought it wasn't quite the right fit. And so I had a neighbor growing up who was a speech language pathologist, and she and I spoke about it. And she encouraged me to look further because it's an extremely uh, varied field with a lot of different uh, ways you can go. And it's uh, never boring in her words. And so I really found the intersection of medicine and psychology and neurology and education to be so interesting. Um, and SLP really incorporates all those things. And so I was really drawn to the medical side of the field, even from my days as an intern in graduate school. And I worked with lots of children with feeding disorders and really found that I had a passion for those kids. Um, I've always worked with kids with complex medical needs, but also with just children who were struggling to figure out the motor process of eating. And so I've specialized in feeding for over 20 years now. And I also became a certified lactation counselor about seven years ago. After working for many years with newborns who were having trouble breastfeeding, I decided to add that to my um, skill set. And so I use my SLP skills with my knowledge of infant feeding um, to my lactation training, and I work with a lot of breastfeeding moms and babies. And so I now do probably two to three evaluations a week um, with different kinds of kids, all the way from newborns up through adolescents, which are um, less frequent, but definitely come in. And I see individual patients for therapy, and I run a group feeding program called STEPS at the UT Dallas Callier Center. And how do you work with families today? So I partner with parents. I think it's really important to recognize that parents are the experts on their own children. Nobody else knows those kids as well as their parents. And so I see myself as a guide or a coach um, in that process and partnering with them to get information from them and problem solve and um, help them with the expertise that I have and coming at the, the problem with solutions and also just diagnostic questions because often it's finding information in what the parent is telling me and then digging deeper that really gets to the heart of what's going on with the child. I love that, that you said that parents are the experts because um, I have a daughter with special needs and I was on a, on a call yesterday with some other moms, like a support group, and we were all saying how you know, in the beginning, we saw certain signs and we knew something wasn't right, but yet everyone else was saying, they're fine, mm -hmm. everything's fine. And really, mm -hmm. as a mom, you have that intuition and you know when something just isn't right, even if you aren't an expert in whatever the, the issue is. So I love that you said that. Absolutely. So when we talk about feeding challenges, what are the most common feeding challenges that parents come to you for? Well, uh, a wide variety, really. I mean, the, the biggest one is probably poor intake, just not eating enough uh, often, not necessarily um, by the parent's estimation, but often by the physicians that are in that child's life where they are looking at the child's uh, weight gain and they're deciding it's not enough, where that child may be tracking the first percentile or the second percentile and the medical professionals decide that that's just not enough um, or not um, 
is, you know, as much intake as they would like. And I look at the child and say, well, the child looks really well proportioned to me. <laughs> um, you know, are we, are we really looking at this from the right angle? Picky eating is a big challenge, especially in toddlers and preschoolers. I have a lot of children with complex medical needs on my caseload. So I see a lot of children who are tube fed, uh, who are, have an NG tube. So in the nose, um, or they already have a G tube in the stomach. And then I do see a lot of infants for bottle feeding or breastfeeding issues. What would you say are some myths or false, deeply held beliefs that parents often have around feeding their kids? You know, I think my favorite one is that sugar makes kids hyper. Okay. Yeah. Honestly, it's funny because no matter how many times I show like friends and family, the actual evidence behind this, they're like, yeah, well, I don't believe that my kid, (laughs) my kid uh, absolutely is more hyper when they eat sugar. And it's so funny because there's, there's quite a few studies. There's actually a study from 1994 that really definitively showed that that's not the case. Um, They showed that you know, the sugar in the diet did not affect the children's behavior because there was place- they had placebos. They knew exactly which kids got sugar and which ones didn't. But another study that followed that up in um, the same year showed that the parents who expect sugar to affect their children, they interpret that that way. So they expect sugar to be um, the, the reason for higher activity levels. And so that's what they believe. And so it's really an interesting thing. And it's very deeply held, you know, parents really demonize sugar quite a bit, um, and think it's, it's bad, bad, bad. And we need to, you know, restrict it as much as possible. And it becomes kind of this tug of war with kids around dessert and sweets. I don't know about that. I don't know. When I feed my kids sugar, I see the hyperness. <laughs> so I don't know, you know if I'm expecting it or if they yeah. really are. Yeah. <laughs> well, what what the researchers have found is that, you know, when when kids are given sweets, it's typically they're excited about it for one, but also they're often in environments that are more excitable. So they're at a party or they're with their friends or they're, you know, hanging out by the pool or they're, you know, having some special event. Um, And so it is, it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, like they're already excited. And so now they look more excited or more hyper. So yeah, you know, and, and obviously, you know, they're giving kids like the real sugar and then the placebo, and then they're you know, testing what the parents are noticing about their kids. So it's really, the, the research is funny and it's, and it's interesting. Um, but another myth that I really find is deeply held for many of the families I work with is that if they feed their child all day long, that their overall intake will go up. Okay. And that's actually really um, the opposite is true. Grazing throughout the day actually decreases caloric intake overall, because what happens is if a child um, is has a little bit of food in their stomach all day long, um, their appetite is curbed. And so they when they come to a meal, they're never really hungry. And so they never finish that meal. They eat a few bites and they're done. I have so many families that come to me and say, you know, he sits down to eat and he eats three bites and then he won't eat anymore. And he's, you know, upset. And then we dig down deeper into what's going on at home and they're following them around with food all day, or they've got, you know, food just sitting out all day. And so the child is basically snacking all day long and there's no like real discreet meals and snacks. So the child actually never has a chance to, to feel hunger, which is necessary. Yeah. So important. And would you say that a lot of parents believe that their kids cannot eat healthy, that we have to serve them, you know, quote unquote, kid food? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, There's, 
I think, you know, in our culture specifically, um, we really have this tendency to underestimate our children's abilities to, to eat well and to eat a good variety. And what, um, I talk about in the book and what we what we discuss with families is that children will learn to eat what the family is eating if they're eating with the family. And so, so many parents um, get frustrated, understandably so, um, when their children don't eat all of the things they want them to eat at age three. And so they begin serving the child separately from their mealtime. You know, the children get their chicken nuggets and mac and cheese before mom and dad sit down Uh, for their nice dinner, you know, because they just don't want to deal with it anymore. And I get it. I have three kids. I totally understand. Um, But it is, it is really necessary. And there is a vast amount of research supporting this, that children from a very young age learn how to eat the food that their parents are eating by watching them eat it, by trusting that that food is actually uh, safe and that it's that it's enjoyable. And so when we, when we pull apart that family meal and the children are eating separately, they're losing out on all those opportunities to make those novel foods more familiar. Yeah, that's so important. I think I've mentioned this probably on almost every podcast episode thus far, but when my kids were toddlers, I would make a big salad for myself for lunch Mm -hmm. and they would be there watching me eat. And they always wanted to eat salad because I was eating it. And I I definitely agree with that. It's so important to have family meals and sit and eat with your kids because they want to be just like you. Mm -hmm. And they, and I think that the recognition that kids go through developmental stages around food is a really important one for parents to grasp because when children are, you know, first eating table food, they're extremely uh, adventurous. Most kids, Um, you know, they will eat, try most everything you put in front of them because they haven't hit what we call the stage of neophobia which is fear of new foods. That's basically the what happens to every single child between 16 and 18 months. And what what the what researchers that have studied this have seen is that it's this biological mechanism because that's around the time that most kids are really mobile and are walking. And so to be uh, neophobic or really uh, leery of new things is protective because you don't want them putting everything in their mouth at that point. You know, you don't want them sampling the, the cleaning fluid from under your sink, you know, right. um, you, you want them to, to be, you know, suspicious of things. And, but this plays out with food because the, the baby that used to eat everything green you put on her plate is now throwing it on the floor or turning up her nose or acting like she's never seen it before. But really it's that she's just becoming neophobic. And so anything that is not extremely familiar or very, very comfortable for that child is going to maybe have a hiatus. (laughs) And I saw this with all three of my kids, you know, broccoli was my daughter's favorite food for like the first two years. And then all of a sudden she's like, nope, I don't want to eat it anymore. And then one day when she was about six and a half, she came up to me when I was getting it off of the off of the counter and putting it in a bowl and she asked for one and I gave her one and she ate it and now she eats it again. You know, but it was in her repertoire as a young child and then she came back to it. And this is what we see over and over again, but when children you know start dropping foods that their parents deem as quote unquote, you know, healthy foods, uh, they get really panicky. 
And then they start to pressure their kids to eat those foods and they don't allow the child to decide, you know, whether they're going to eat it or not. And they start bribing and coercing and rewarding. And what they do is they make that food way less um, uh, enjoyable for the child. They make it way less interesting because the child then feels like, wow, this food must be really bad if the parents are having to work so hard to get me to eat it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's all important stuff. So let's talk about those pressure tactics and negotiating with our kids. Would Mm -hmm. you say that that is another kind of big mistake that we make when we feed our kids? It's a really, really common experience for parents. Most parents that I talk to get pulled into this. uh, And it's, it's a very natural thing for parents to do to think that they have to get their child to eat, that they have to motivate them in some way, that they have to, you know, create some incentive for their child to eat. And it's just not true. Uh, We know from there's such a giant body, body of literature looking at pressure and, you know, pushing kids to eat being actually really negative. It actually makes them eat less um, and enjoy the foods less. It causes them to like the foods way less than if we were to allow the child to come at it at their own pace. And so, you know, bribing, even bribing with other foods, you know, bribing with dessert is a big one. Most parents do this and most parents will push back pretty hard when I say, you know, maybe we shouldn't do that because, you know, we're basically putting the, the dessert on a pedestal and saying, oh, you have to slog through your green beans to get to this wonderful dessert. And we're saying that the dessert is so much better at that point. And so we want the dessert to be on an even playing field with the other foods that it's all just food. And so what I um, ask my families to try and what I've done with my children is to serve dessert along with dinner or with whatever meal you're having dessert. Um, and one serving, that's all you get, but you you decide when you're going to eat it. And it works really well. Little children absolutely understand that it's all the same and they'll go back and forth. They'll take a bite of their cupcake and then they'll eat some broccoli and then they'll eat some sausage and then they'll have another bite of cupcake and they can go back and forth and because nobody's worried about it. Yeah, I love that idea. Uh, Dr. Dina Rose talks about this in her book, It's Not About the Broccoli. Um, mm-hmm. She calls it the, the dessert deal. And she says that it should be, it shouldn't be where you have to eat your broccoli in order to get your dessert. But she also talks about rethinking dessert. So maybe dessert is, you know, um, a fruity yogurt or a, a homemade muffin or something like that. Yeah, it's whatever a family feels good about. I think there's just, I I think we just need to understand that children are are drawn to sweets. It's natural. Um, You know, breast milk, which is often the first food a baby gets, is very, very sweet. Our bodies are driven by, you know, carbohydrates. And so sweet is actually an indicator that a food has energy. So kids are going to be drawn to it. And if we can make it a non-issue and just create an environment where children learn how to manage sweets, then we're going to be better off in the long run. Absolutely. And I think in the U.S., you know, as parents, a lot of us are really focused on nutrition and how much variety of foods our kids are getting in their diets. And I know, you know, I'm in this space. so I'm always thinking about, do they have enough green leafy vegetables mm-hmm. today? And did they get enough protein? Are they having enough calcium? Did I give them enough healthy fats? And, and, and it's, you know, I know friends of mine who aren't in the nutrition space think about these things too, and it stresses them out. And so where do you think this comes from? And and is it something we should be focused on? You know, I think in our society, 
now and the time that we're in, we're in the time of plenty, right? There's so much variety at the grocery store. We have so much opportunity to eat all of these different foods. And you think about when like our grandparents were raising children and there just wasn't that variety. They were very much uh, only able to serve the foods that they had at the local market. And it wasn't that, that varied. And so I think because we have this ability to serve all these foods and eat all those foods, we, we put pressure on ourselves to get our children to eat them. And, you know, they have a lifetime to figure this out. This isn't something that they have to figure out by the time they're three or four, you know, we, they are brand new eaters. And so it is really important, I think, to understand that nutrition in a child, um, comes from variety. Yes, but they can get they can get really good nutrition from just one or two foods from each food group. Like that'll do it. And every dietitian I talk to says, yep, they're doing fine. You know, they'll look at their list and go, they're meeting all their needs. And so uh, there's, again, a lot of nutrition talk, you know, in the media and social media and just all over the place. And so parents, I think, feel this, this, you know, need to just be perfect. And perfect is often the enemy of good. And then whenever we put that pressure on the child who's learning and developing eating skills, we can create a situation where they actually turn away from those foods and think that they don't want to eat them because they're being pressured to. Um, And I think also, like you said, protein. Um, Many, many times uh, parents overestimate their child's protein needs and underestimate how much protein they're actually getting because you can get protein from so many different sources that parents don't necessarily think about. There's protein in bread. There's protein in pasta. There's protein in yogurt and milk and all these um you know, so-called kid foods that children often eat. And so when you add them all up, children are actually usually doing pretty well. Um, It's, I I had can count on one hand the times I've sent a child to a dietitian and they come back and say, oh yes, they're missing, you know, giant portions of this, this nutrient or whatever. So I think we do over-focus on it. And I think we need to focus on building a positive relationship with food. Yes, absolutely. These are all great points. So let's talk about picky eating and what is the difference between your regular old picky eating and extreme picky eating? So regular old picky eating. So you want to think about your typical toddler who, again, goes through that neophobic stage and maybe drops foods that they've been eating before, but they're eating a pretty good variety um, over the course of a week. I tell parents not to look at each meal or even over the course of a day, but to look over the course of a week. Because as we know, I always say toddlers are predictably unpredictable. And so they will eat something with gusto one day and then absolutely ignore it the next day. And that is just their MO. And many preschoolers will do this too. And so if we focus on what they're doing at each meal, we can drive ourselves crazy. Um, and that that may be what we call more picky eating, where they're, they're just selective sometimes, but they still are getting enough to eat. They're not anxious about it. They're eating a good variety from each food group, um, and they're doing just fine. Extreme picky eating is when they're not eating enough quantity or variety um, to support healthy emotional physical or social development. And if those eating patterns really cause a significant worry or conflict, then it might be extreme picky eating. Because when parents are really, really just so desperate and are absolutely consumed with their child's eating, then it's probably an extreme picky eating situation. Okay. 
And how, how, how common is extreme picky eating? There's a really big, uh, big range. When you look at the the estimates in the literature, you know, it's anything from 15% to, you know, 5% to 20%. It really, it really varies. I mean, I estimate that, you know, picky eaters, picky eaters in general are probably a good, you know, 25% of the kid population because there's, you know, a lot of kids that are picky, but those extreme cases, they're way less common. Okay. That's reassuring. And so with an extreme picky eater, what are some of the problems that can occur? Well, you have a child that's maybe really emotional or upset at every meal. So where you feel like you have to like drag them to the table or they don't want to sit or they're crying all the time or they're gagging, sometimes vomiting. Um, If they're really anxious about it, uh, if they can't go to like social gatherings or sleepovers or anything like that because they're worried about not having something to eat. Um, if, if you've got documented nutritional deficiencies or the child is falling off her own growth curve. And I say own growth curve, because I think that's a really important point is that even if a child is considered to be, you know, lower on the growth chart, as far as like, you know, fifth percentile, 10th percentile, something like that, if they're tracking along on their own Uh, growth curve, we need to be really cognizant of that and think, you know, this child is doing fine. They're tracking, they're, they're gaining weight and growing at their own pace and not focus so much on comparing them to other children. But also if a child, um, you know, has poor energy or they just seem to be uh, not developing like they should um, because of their diet, then we need to be, you know, a little bit more concerned. But, you know, I think it's really understanding the the whole situation, right? I look at the context that the child is in when I'm deciding, you know, whether a child needs intervention because the child's eating is always within the context of the family dynamic. And so that's a really important piece of information. So I get lots of information from the family about how many kids there are, how do they eat at home? You know, what kind of things have the parents done to to get their kids to eat before? Have they seen any other professionals? You know, all those things are going to play a role. Great. Well, so we're going to go to a break now. When we get back, we're going to talk about some of the reasons behind extreme picky eating. If you want mealtimes to be easier and less stressful, getting your kids in the kitchen to cook is one of the best things you can do. I know it's really encouraged my kids to eat their vegetables and try new foods, and it's given them a ton of confidence in the kitchen. But if you don't know how to cook or you don't like to cook, the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. This course was created by a mom of four and former elementary school teacher, and it's designed to build connection, confidence, and creativity in the kitchen. With Kids Cook Real Food, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, principal supply and grocery shopping lists, and kid-friendly recipes like Tex-Mex white bean dip and homemade pizza. The course is designed for all kids ages two to teen and has three different skill levels. Your kids will learn how to crack eggs, cook rice, make a salad, and safely use knives, the oven, and appliances. If your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, no problem because the course has a ton of substitutions. My kids and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that my kids made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. 
If you're trying to cut down on processed foods and get your kids to eat more real whole foods and become healthy, adventurous eaters, then the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. You can sign up for the course by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up. So in our last segment, we were talking about some of the problems that can occur with extreme picky eating. And so now, you know, can we go into what are the reasons behind extreme picky eating? Sure. There's really um, so many different reasons. And I really have to go through every single one of them with families and figure out and tease apart what may be going on in a child's life. So medical challenges are always the first one I look for. If a child maybe had severe reflux as a baby, that can really shape their relationship with food. We know that the neural pathways are being formed from day one. And so a baby is feeding all day long. And so if that feeding is painful, they're going to learn that feeding is not something that they want to do. And that can show up later. There's, um, there's a high prevalence of feeding issues in children with significant reflux. So that's something to think about. Also, if there's any issues like food allergies or something that I have come across very recently uh, or more recently is eosinophilic esophagitis, which is um, an allergy-related erosion of the esophagus where you have these white cells called eosinophils that are not supposed to be in the esophagus and they're very painful because the esophagus becomes very inflamed and it's usually food allergy related. And so there's... um, they're getting much better at understanding how to treat it. And so I work with many kids who have this and they really, they won't swallow. They literally won't, they'll chew and put food in their mouth, but they won't swallow because it hurts. And so understanding that there are these diagnoses out there that can cause children to really refuse to swallow is an important piece of my diagnostic evaluation. Um, Oral motor challenges are another big one. So if a child uh, is having difficulty moving the food around in their mouth and they're having trouble figuring out how to manage textured foods and they're not chewing well and the food is moving back before they're ready and it causes them to gag, they're going to have a they're going to have trouble with moving to table food or eating a variety of foods. They may stick with one texture. They may prefer you know, pureed foods, or they may prefer what I call cohesive foods, foods that stick together and don't scatter in their mouth because they feel safer. Because something we really have to think about is that kids are going to protect their airway. Number one, that's what they need to do. They have to protect their airway at all costs. And so if they don't feel safe when they're managing food in their mouth, they're going to avoid that situation. And so I always do a full oral motor evaluation to make sure that we're not missing anything there. And even subtle oral motor deficits can be a factor. And so I always look at gross motor development as well and make sure that that is on on track because that can um, actually cause some oral motor delays because oral motor is a fine motor process and that actually comes after gross motor development. 
And then um, to tag on to that, sensory challenges are a big issue. So I'm sure you've heard of kids that have just extreme reactions to different textures and flavors, and they may be super sensitive to the way things feel in their mouth. Um, so we call these children, you know, hypersensitive or hyperreactive. And there's also children on the other end of the spectrum where they're hyporeactive, where they don't seem to feel the food on their face. They don't seem to know that there's still food in their mouth that they need to swallow. Um, they may be really drawn to crunchy foods or sour foods or spicy foods, uh, things that you wouldn't necessarily um, expect from a child. And so we need to recognize those issues, too, because they can absolutely get in the way of, of eating a variety. And then another really big um reason for picky eating is temperament, because we know, you know, children are born who they are. They are their own little person and with their own temperament and their own personality. But we also know, you know, children have what, what we call in our book, a food temperament. Um, they, they just approach food in a certain way. They may be really cautious. Um, there's actually research showing that kids will be um, kids that are very cautious with a novel toy will also be cautious with novel foods. And so children just have this overarching temperament and that's often how they will approach foods. And sometimes kids that are what we call, you know, high strung um, or very precise or very, um, they need things to be a certain way. Those kids can struggle. My middle son, I talk about him in our book and he's, he's this way. He's very um, precise. He's always been, um, wanting things to follow the rules and, and wants things to go a certain way. And he has been my pickiest child, um, you know, was very selective for a period of time and had a lot of anxiety around food. And we just stuck with the plan of using division of responsibility and really just serving things and not pressuring him. And he's 12 now and is doing fantastic. And so right. that's, you know, something to really think about that that temperament plays a big role in how they how they approach life in general. Um, and then the last one that I look at is negative experiences. So if a child has has choked on a food or has even gagged or has a history of vomiting, I work with so many children who vomit for, you know, months or years because of different GI issues. And that can really affect how they approach food. And there, you know, you think about it, if you vomited every day or multiple times a day, why would you want to put anything in your mouth? Right. You know, it, it becomes a very, very negative uh, association. And so children also that are coerced or are force fed, I mean, I unfortunately meet quite a few of these children. And that is also a big reason why they will just refuse to eat, you know, anything that their parents want them to eat. Um, and so those negative experiences are, I think we can't downplay them. I have really dug into the literature and the work around, you know, trauma-informed care in the last few years, because I do work with so many kids who have uh, lots of medical history. And so those kids who have been intubated and had multiple surgeries and are always in and out of the doctor's office, they carry with them that that medical trauma and that feeling of, you know, being out of control. And so those experiences absolutely shape how they approach what happens in their mouth. And so I think that's something we all need to think about too. 
Wow, that's so much information and the issues <laughs> sound so complex. And But I think at the same time, it, this is all great information because I think a lot of parents kind of are suffering in silence mm-hmm. and think that, you know, are told that maybe everything is okay. And, and but they know really that, that something else is going on. So this is really great information. So let's talk about avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. So what is this and what do we need to know about it? So ARFID, or Avoided Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, is um, this new kind of designation in the you know, diagnostic manual that really sets apart these children and adults as well who really struggle on another level with eating. And it can be related to, um, it can be that social emotional piece where they really struggle with, with food from that angle. It, um, often one of the criteria is, um, not eating enough for, for adequate growth. So just not being able to grow properly based on intake, or if there's a need for supplemental, um, feedings, either through a tube or through like something like Pediasure by mouth. And so when we see, you know, children who are really, really struggling, the biggest takeaway I think that I have for ARFID is that there is this really significant anxiety piece. Um, Those children and adults, I'm in quite a few groups with um, adults with ARFID and anxiety is the overriding theme. Um, Just really viscerally reacting to the idea of eating a certain food. Food may not be even viewed as something that is um, possible to be eaten. It might be seen as, you know, poisonous or really just disgusting. Disgust is a big part of it. And so it is, um, it's an, it's tough because I think the, the criteria themselves don't always, um, set us up to making a good diagnosis necessarily um, because the criteria says you can't diagnose a feeding disorder when there's a medical illness. But I think it's an oversimplification because we know that those medical problems are often the root cause of the feeding problems and that the feeding problems persist even when the medical issue is gone, you know, Mm -hmm. so children's reflux can be gone, but they're still persisting and having these feeding issues. And so, you know, when we have these, these situations where we know there is a significant history, I think we have to really look at that through a different lens and decide, you know, is it, is this really ARFID or is this more, you know, extreme picky eating that the child, um, that if we shape things at home and with, um, through the parents, we can really kind of get ahead of it and make things better for the child, or if this is something that's more significant. And so how common is ARFID? I don't know, honestly. Uh-huh. And and I don't know that anybody really knows because again, the diagnostic criteria are pretty broad. You can you can get the diagnosis with a variety of different criteria. You don't have to meet all the criteria. And so, you know, different people are going to be diagnosing it in different ways, of course, which is just like just like anything. But it's um, I think understanding that it is not to be taken lightly. I'm not going to diagnose a child with ARFID or, you know, talk to another colleague, professional colleague about diagnosing a child with ARFID if I don't think it's uh, significant enough where we can't make some good changes if we try first. So I often want to try first and work with the families and and see how that goes before I'm going to put a label like that on a child. Right. Absolutely. And are there signs though that a parent should look for? 
Yeah. And I think, um, you know, we talk about in our book, you know, what ARFID is and what is extreme picky eating and what is normal kind of more typical picky eating. Um, we describe that pretty, pretty thoroughly in the book. So um, I think it's helpful for parents to understand that right now, currently, treatment for ARFID is, is not what I would actually um recommend if the if the treatment is being done in like an eating disorders facility that is the lion's share of where treatment is happening is these eating disorder facilities that treat bulimia and anorexia nervosa and they're very different um, it is so not the same thing but they are using the same treatment methods with the children and teens with arfid and i i just really firmly believe that it's not the right approach um, because these kids don't have body image issues. They don't have issues with um, control necessarily from a body standpoint. It is purely about the food. And so it's, it's I think, a little bit dangerous to really say, you know what, we're going to refeed this teen with ARFID, just like we would refeed the teen with anorexia, because it, it sets them up for having even more anxiety and making the problem worse. I've actually worked with quite a few teenagers who come out of these treatments and they're saying, and one told me, I said, oh, well, how was it? You know, what did you, what did you find? Um, she was 17 and a dancer and, you know, perfectly well-proportioned. And, um, and she said, oh, well, I learned, I ate 302 new foods. I said, oh, that's great. Um, how many of those foods do you still eat? And she said, uh, none. <laughs> and I said, wow. oh, why do you think that is? And she said, well, you know, I was sitting at the table with all the other kids and I was the only kid with our fit and everybody else was there because they, you know, don't eat at all. And, you know, all this. And she said, oh, well, they would just put a, a new food on, on the edge of my plate and I would have to eat one bite. And then I was done. And that was it. And then I'd have to go to these groups and I'd, they'd have to talk about their feelings. And, you know, and she said, and I just really checked out because none of it applied to me. And, um, and so I think the moral of that story was that it just, it wasn't, it wasn't right. Right. Mm -hmm. She hadn't developed a, a liking for those foods and she hadn't been allowed to go toward those foods at her own pace. She had been told, this is the rule. This is how you get to leave the table. And it didn't create uh, you know, any situation where she would continue to eat those. And that's not the goal. You know, the, the goal is not to eat one bite. It's to, you know, learn to how to incorporate new foods into your diet. So it seems like there's more research that's needed around this condition, right? Yes. And I think it's just, you know, when it showed up in the diagnostic manual and it's kind of classified as, as a type of eating disorder, then of course, eating disorder professionals were being inundated with requests for treatment and really didn't have any sort of treatment model that was different. And so they use what they had. Right. And so what do you recommend if someone gets this diagnosis, where should they go for help and what would be a better approach? So depending on their age, um, again, I, we have, I have a second book for teens and adults that's called Conquer Picky Eating for Teens and Adults. And it's a self-guided workbook. And it is uh, set up around the idea that these the teens and adults often have had ongoing, you know, issues since they were little kids and that you really have to come from a place of acceptance and say, okay, this is where, this is who I am now. This is what I enjoy now. What are my goals for myself? What do I want? And then figure it out and say, you know, I'm going to give myself some grace and I'm going to take it one step at a time and not expect that this is going to change overnight. Um, but really understanding yourself is really crucial for those older teens and adults, but for younger children, 
her getting this diagnosis. I mean, I really, I advocate for the approach that I take, which is a responsive feeding approach where we're really, you know, trying to be empathetic and understand where the child is coming from and not push them too fast or too far and understand that their challenges are not their choice. You know, they are who they are and they, they don't want to be like that. You know, they don't want to feel anxious about food. Um, and they're not doing it to spite us. And I think that's a crucial piece of the puzzle for parents is just to really take a step back and object objectively go, you know what, they're not doing this to me. <laughs> you know, we, we are in this together. And, and, and my book I think is a good place to start because it really gets at the why and helping parents understand their child better, which is the place they all need to start. Yeah, absolutely. And you talked about anxiety as being kind of the common thread for ARFID. Are there mm -hmm. other risk factors? Um, you know, I think that they're starting, yes, they're starting to find other risk factors. There's, there's one criteria that is had, you know, had a traumatic event, like a choking event. Those children can get diagnosed with ARFID, uh, where they're just afraid. I have actually met children who uh, have witnessed a choking event and then won't eat afterwards or won't, you know, won't eat anything that needs to be chewed um, because it was so traumatic. And so I think there's, you know, there are definitely other criteria that get put into the ARFID category. So children that have more of like a generalized anxiety that, that struggle with that, they, they may be more prone to having that issue. Um, and who just, you know, I, I just think of it as like more severe situations, more, you know, children who are literally not eating enough to grow um, or, or have to be, you know, and I don't diagnose my, my tube fed kids with ARFID because I feel like I'm like, it's, a, it is, it's medically based. These kids didn't eat for a reason. And, you know, if they're 12, 13, 14, and still having issues, yes, we may put that diagnosis out there, but it's really, I think, understanding what's going on with the individual child rather than the diagnosis, because there's so many ways you can get to that diagnosis. <laughs> and so it's hard to, it's hard to really, I think, put, um, say, oh yes, this is, this is what ARFID looks like. Cause it can look different in every single child. Right. And it sounds like it doesn't really matter whether you have a diagnosis or not. Right. I mean, you still no. have to treat it in a different, you know, you have to approach it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about what eating well means. Hey friends, if you've got kids, you've got picky eaters. And as a mom of two, I totally get it. There are foods my kids flat out refuse to eat or foods they love one day and the next, not so much. Still through the years, I've learned the secrets to raising healthy, adventurous eaters. And I want to share what I've learned with you in my free video course, Turn Your Picky Eaters Into Little Foodies. In this course, you'll learn some of the most effective ways to get your kids to eat their vegetables, try new foods, and how you can put an end to picky eating for good. To sign up, all you have to do is go to julierevelant.com and click on freebies. So in our last segment, we were talking about ARFID and how to go about seeking help if you think your kid may have that or have extreme picky eating. And so, you know, Jenny, I had read an interview that you conducted with Bettina Elias Siegel, who actually was on Food Issues Season 1, Episode 5, and I'm a big fan of hers. And 
In the interview, you had said that parents should rethink what eating well means. And I absolutely love this because I think we talk about this, like just like nutrition, we talk about eating well and eating better. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk about more about what you meant? I meant just that we need to think about the whole child and not about every bite that goes in their mouth. Um, And really consider that, again, look across the week, across the month, across the year, and think about how your child is developing, how they're maybe adding new foods, that they're adding variety, and also just really think about their attitude. You know, eating well is not so much about, you know, the, the nutrients in every bite of food, but really, are they happy and calm and pleasant at mealtimes, you know, because we know that um, anxiety can absolutely interfere with appetite. And so if you ever, I would say, you know, if you've got butterflies in your stomach, there's no room for food. And I, I mean, every time I've been super nervous about something, I can't eat. I physically can't do it. And so if a child is coming to the table every day and is having those feelings and their stomachs and knots, they're just not going to be very ready to eat. And so eating well is this idea that a child is going to eat enough for what they need right then and also eat what their body is telling them to eat. Because we know that kids don't eat like the myplate.gov, you know, they just really don't. (laughs) They, They don't sit down and go, oh, mommy, let me eat, you know everything from this portioned plate and make everyone happy because their little bodies are growing. And so they may be really in need of carbohydrates at one point of the day because they need quick energy. They may be really craving protein at a different part of the day. And then they may really want their fruits and veggies at a different part of the day. So, you know, understanding that kids may eat one type of food at each meal and then vary it out throughout the day. And that's okay because they're getting what their body needs. And also just really thinking about, you know, trusting our kids because the research is so interesting looking at kids before age four and that they are absolutely wonderful at regulating their own intake. They do a great job of regulating the the number of calories they need in a 24-hour period and making up calories when they didn't eat enough before um, and then eating less calories when they had a larger meal than average. So they're, they're great at this. And we, we mess with that instinct by asking them to eat more, by asking them to keep eating when they maybe have already told us they're done. Um, and so eating well is just about, you know, having kids be really good at trusting their own body and eating for what their body needs. That's great. Yeah. I think for all of us, right? Some days Mm -hmm. we feel like eating carbs. Some days we don't. Mm -hmm. Um, That's so great. Yeah. I think that's really great advice. So for parents who are concerned about their picky eater, extremely picky eater, or anything else going around at mealtime, what are some steps that they should take to get help? Because you mentioned before, there's so many different professionals who could potentially Mm -hmm. help, but where should they start? Um, I really, I point parents to um, Ellen Satter's division of responsibility first. And then we wrote our book because we found that many parents didn't quite understand how to implement it in real life. And so that's what our book is about. It's how to actually implement the division of responsibility, which is that the parents are in charge of what is on the table. So you're in charge of the menu. You're in charge of where 
food is happening? Is it at a picnic table? Is it at your family dinner table? Is it on the floor? You know, where is it happening? Um, and when it's happening, because you're in charge of the schedule and the routine. Children, their job, their responsibility is to choose whether they eat a food and how much of it they eat. And so, you know, taking that into practice is hard for many families. And so I tell families before they come to see me for an evaluation um, or they're in my program is to start with reading the book, just to really understand and familiarize themselves with the approach and understanding more about themselves and about their child, um, because they often get a lot of their questions answered before they even see a professional. And when they do come see me, we have a much more, um, you know, fruitful conversation because they will come to me with just better informed um, comments. And they have now thought, oh, aha, that's what happened. You know, that's when my child really changed because, you know, it can really, you know, bad therapy is, is, really not good, right? So if a child gets in with a professional who says, oh, well, we need to just make or eat it, um, it can make a, a bad situation much worse. And so I think parents, you know, look at my website, it's extremepickyeating.com, read about the approach and understand like there's, there's definite things you can start doing at home before you even see anybody, um, you can talk to your your physician and see, you know, if there's somebody they recommend. But really, um, often, and you know, pediatricians get like zero training in feeding development, like none, um, and so they get 30 minutes of nutrition and that's it. So they are definitely not like the experts in feeding development or in how to treat it. So I tell parents, look, take it with a grain of salt because I've heard everything from starve your kid out. He'll eat, he'll eat eventually, you know, um, to you just need to use tough love. Just make, just make him eat it. Just make him sit there for three hours until he eats it. And neither of those approaches actually works. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it can make that relationship you have with your child really negative, which none of us want. And so I, I, I very much, um, take the approach that intervention is not always the, the way that we have to go. Um, okay. much of this can be done at home with parents. And it does take, you know, a firm determination and a very kind of consistent approach takes a leap of faith because some things are really different than what parents have been doing, um, day to day. But again, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've been running my feeding program for 16 years. And so I've had hundreds and hundreds of families come through and apply these approaches. And they, I mean, every one of them, they're like, Oh my gosh, like I didn't know that I can enjoy mealtime with my child, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And I think that's the most important piece of this is that, you know, we know that family mealtimes are eating with your children. There's so many benefits to that, you know, better grades, less drug use, less alcohol use, you know, just better, better attachment, you know, children who grow up and, and have fond memories of mealtime. It's not about the food. It's about the time together. And so if we can, if we can create a space where there's peace and calmness and happiness at mealtimes, that's what the child is going to learn from. Um, and they're going to be able to grow at their own pace and discover that the foods that they want to eat based on what is, you know, at the table with them and what their parents are eating in their own time. Um, and so I don't jump to intervention. I, I try to talk parents through some things before I even bring them in for an evaluation, because, you know, often it's just reassuring or problem solving for a few minutes that can really get them kind of over a hump. 
And, and then if they want to come in for an evaluation and I feel like that's necessary where I can determine like, oh, wow, there's an oral motor issue or this child has some sensory deficits or, you know, oh, wow, nobody has, has even referred for a GI workup or all, you know, all these things that, that I might catch that a parent may not catch. Okay. That's very helpful. So the steps plus approach, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, so you specialize that and how does that work? So STEPS is the name of my group feeding program at UT Dallas, and um, it stands for Supportive Treatment of Eating and Preschoolers. And so STEPS Plus was the combination of Katya Rowell, my co-author, her work with families and my work with with families and children. And so we kind of combined our work to to come up with this this approach, because what what I found is that, you know, I was teaching parents all of these things. and but but not in a very you know organized fashion and so that's what our book does it just really brings it together in the very kind of stepwise organized fashion so parents can really first of all understand what's going on with their child and understand their own issues because we all we all have you know guilt and our own anxiety around our child's eating and fear maybe um and so those things i think you know need to be thought about and and really piece apart as well. And so there's five basic components after parents kind of understand their child's issues and their own issues. And the first one is decreasing stress and anxiety and power struggles, because like I said, anxiety and stress just kill appetite. And so we want kids to be at the table without that sense of battle without that tug of war going on, um, you know, take a bite, Johnny, you know, you need to eat your vegetables. Why aren't you eating? You know, all of those things that we do, or you can't have dessert until you finish, you know, all those things that we say to kids that really just, just make them eat less and make them not want to be there. Um, and I, I always tell my parents, you know, if you wouldn't say it to your spouse's boss, don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause we treat, we treat children like they don't know how to do these things and, and they really do. And, you know, they, they can be trusted. And so we first have to focus on decreasing all of that, all of that pressure and anxiety, and then work on establishing a routine. So for parents that really, that's not their forte. Um, we give very specific instructions about how to do that, how to, how to structure the day so that the child has very discreet meals and snacks. And we call them eating opportunities because if you think about when a child is hungriest, so if they're in preschool or like kindergarten, first grade, they may be the hungriest right when they get home from school, like three o'clock because they're very distracted at lunchtime. They're with their friends. They're not eating very much likely. That's very common. And so they're starving when they get home. And so if we just throw them some goldfish on the table, that's not going to do it. And it's actually a great opportunity and really can, you know, set us up for, for success because we take that, you know, hunger is the best um, sauce, you know, we, we set them up for success because we're giving them three or four different items. And they it may be, you know, from all the different food groups. And it's really a, a more of a meal at that point um, because they're so hungry. And that can be a great um, opportunity to serve a new food or to, you know, serve a food that's slightly different or altered in some way um, because they're going to be less likely to be pushing back because they're hungry. Um, but that routine is really important. Like I said before, the grazing is sabotaging appetite. So that's an important 
piece. And then this, the third one is enjoying pleasant family meals. So really understanding how to do that. And it can either be, you know, buffet style or just in the middle of the table. And we, we really problem solve through all the different things that can get in the way. Cause there's lots of obstacles to that where parents say, oh my gosh, all the dishes, if I put it through everything on the table, it's too many dishes. And so we give a lot of like, you know, fixes for that. Oh, you know, well, you could you could have, you know, glass bowls that have lids. I have all of these glass bowls with lids because I love the see-through bowls so children can see what's in them. But also I can just pop a lid on it and stick it back in the fridge if it wasn't consumed. And then um, making sure, you know, if a child is sort of family style, they often will sit there for 10 or 15 minutes, like checking the food out and not wanting it on their plate. And then all of a sudden they're like, Hey, I want some of that after Mm -hmm. they've watched everybody eat it. Yeah. And so, you know, you really, there's so much value in just having the food sitting there, um, so that they can see it and maybe, maybe pass the food around. Maybe they can serve it to you. If you say, Hey, would you put some, would you put some chicken on my plate, please? You know, and they can get good at serving with utensils and doing all of that. Cause you know, two-year-olds can serve themselves. Like I, my children's preschool did a great job of family style meals and all the kids passed around the, the bowls and served themselves. And it was beautiful. Uh-huh. That's so, and cute. so yeah, teaching kids how to do this, I think is a really important skill. And so, you know, I'm focusing on the conversation Focusing on talking about anything other than the food is an important skill for parents to learn. Um, They often have to white knuckle it for a little while when they're just so concerned about what their child is or isn't eating. Um, But then the next step is building skills in what to feed and how to feed. So, you know, some people are just not good meal planners that just not their thing or they, you know, order in all the time or they're just not a good cook or they just feel like they can't do that. And so we give a lot of suggestions about how to do that, how to, you know, put a meal together and really throwing out the conventions of like, oh, well, this doesn't go with that. Well, it doesn't really matter. You know, if your child's um, preferred food is, you know, pretzels right now, you can have a bowl of pretzels alongside your roast. You know, you mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter. And so understanding that those conventions are are really arbitrary and they're not they're not rules and how to feed is is always more important than what you're feeding and thinking about that division of responsibility that relationship with your child being responsive to them watching them and making sure that we're responding in a you know compassionate way and not pushing them to do things that they're not ready to do um, but but facilitating their progress by presenting a variety of foods by not pigeonholing them and saying, oh, they only eat X, Y, Z. So I'm only serving X, Y, Z because then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, we're, we're creating the situation we don't want by only serving the things we're, we're sure that they will eat. And it also goes to the fact that we don't trust them, right? If you, if you don't trust a child to branch out, you'll never serve them something different. And, you know, I often hear parents saying, oh, she doesn't like that. Oh, she doesn't eat such and such. Or, oh, oh, you don't like that directly to the child when the child just picked it up, you know? And you think, wow, like what would it happen if we just let the child do something with that food, you know, rather than jumping all over and saying, oh, well, you don't eat that. Um, because this happens all the time because for some reason, you know, we, we just, create some of this um, angst around eating, right? Where children need to engage with the food and familiarize themselves with it over a period of time. So it may be seven, eight, 10, 15 meals where they've maybe touched it or maybe looked at it or maybe 
threw it on the floor or whatever they did with it, but they were engaging with it in a way that helped them become more familiar with it so that they could at some point put it in their mouth and try it. And it's up to them. Yeah. It's like with anything else in terms of being a parent, we can't expect that a behavior is going to change overnight. But some, for mm-hmm. some reason with food, we expect our kids to automatically take to everything that's on the table. <laughs> yeah, we do. And you know, it's a really high ask, you know, yeah. um, it really is because, you know, and the next step kind of goes to that is that um, for, you know, strengthening and supporting oral motor and sensory skills, because what we know about children's eating development is that they don't eat like like adults, as far as the skills for different foods until they're like three years old. So, you know, they're not capable of eating some of these foods in an adult-like manner until they're around age three. And so expecting them to is just kind of ridiculous. We would never expect a one-year-old to be potty trained, right? Right. We, we would never expect a two-year-old to ride a bike without training wheels. We, you know, just these things that we automatically go, well, of course not. Well, it's the same thing with eating. You know, we really need to, to allow our children to develop at the pace they're meant to develop and also recognize that they have, we want them, this is a lifelong skill. So we want them to develop a really strong, positive relationship with food and establish trust with their bodies, with the food, with you, because if they don't trust their own bodies, that's going to cause them all sorts of trouble. You know, if they don't, if, if their, if their body is, is really betraying them because it causes them pain or discomfort every time they eat, or they feel like they're going to gag because they don't have good oral motor skills or they're aspirating. I mean, I diagnose kids at age five and six sometimes with dysphagia where the food is, their drink is going into their lungs. And I'm like, well, no wonder they don't want to drink water, you know? Um, You know, so those situations really, we have to, they have to trust their own body. And so we have to facilitate that by trusting them. So when they tell us, I don't want to eat, we have to trust them that they know their their body better than anybody else. You know, I always tell parents, you don't know what's happening inside his body right now. And neither do I, and neither does that doctor and neither does anybody. So we have to trust that that child knows what they can and can't do in that moment. Great. And yeah, it is just, you know, that structured routine, optimizing appetite. So they learn to eat a healthy amount for them is, is crucial in that, in that part. And when parents say, well, what can I do? Because we need to have control as parents. We, you know, we need to feel like we're doing something. All of those things are totally in your control. So that routine, where you eat, what you put on the table, all those things are things that you can control. What your child eats in that moment or, you know, how fast they eat it or how many bites they take is not in your control and really shouldn't be. Right, right. Wow. This is all great information, Jenny. So in your book, you talk about scripts for your child grandparents, teachers, others in the school environment. Why are these important and what are your favorite and most effective ones? I think scripts really help parents to have something to fall back on um, because they often don't know what to say in the moment because this is hard for a lot of families. It's a totally different way to approach food. It may be completely different from what their family did. So if a parent has, you know, really negative memories of being forced to sit there and finish their meal. Um, I can't tell you how many parents tell me these horror stories of, oh, I had to sit there for three hours until I finished everything on my plate. And when I finally ate whatever it was, I threw it all up because I couldn't stand it. And to this day, I still won't eat, you know, corn or whatever, you know? And so the parents, I think, have their own 
they have their own history. And so they don't often know how to say the right thing or they feel like they're going to be uh, making things worse. And so we do um, lots of bolded scripts in the book to give parents things they can rely on in a moment of stress so they can keep things on track. Um, and the, the situation I find to be uh, the most challenging for families, especially once they've kind of done this for a while and they followed the approach for a good period of time is when they go to visit grandparents or they go to a party or they go to some situation where there's other adults who with good intention want to intervene in the child's eating. So they may put food on the child's plate that the child didn't ask for. They may, you know, put food up to the child's mouth. They, you know, a well-meaning teacher may say, well, I can get them to eat this, you know, um, and not understanding that the child really is not ready to eat that yet. Um, so my favorite script is probably the words, follow my lead. Okay. And we use it with other people that are eating with your child and that are trying to pressure your child to eat foods that aren't ready to eat. So when we say that to them, we're, we're not being, you know, um, negative. We're not saying, you know, this is, this is something that I, you know, really dislike that you're doing. We're just saying, Hey, could you follow my lead where, you know, maybe we're working with a feeding therapist or, you know, we've read this book and we're very, we're trying a different approach and it's really working for us. Can you just follow my lead? And so what that does is it allows the teacher, the family friend, the grandparent to, to pay attention to what you're doing. And so then you can be really, um, you know, clear about, we don't make Johnny eat anything he doesn't want to eat. It's Johnny's job to decide what he's ready to eat. And we'll, we're going to respect that. And I often frame it for adults. I say, so if I sat across from you at lunch and I nitpicked everything you put in your mouth and I said, well, are you going to finish your, your vegetables? Why are you eating your roll before you finish your chicken? You, you haven't eaten every bite of that. You can't have this cake yet. I mean, they'd be appalled, right? right? We would hate it. We would hate it if a friend <laughs> or a colleague or a, you know, whoever nitpicked our eating choices. But that's what we do to kids and we make eating such a negative experience for them. And so I think it's 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 helpful to frame it in those terms for other adults because they they just think they're helping. Yeah, absolutely. And they and they and they don't recognize that what they're doing is actually, you know, making things worse and making it where the child doesn't want to go to that place anymore. So Jenny, you gave us so much good information and tips for parents, but what would you say are your most effective strategies for getting kids to eat new foods um, and just overall healthy eating habits at home? So, you know, that word get is a loaded one, isn't it? Yeah, um, right. Yes. You know, it, <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. It, you know, it and again, it presumes that it's the parent's job to somehow magically convince the child that they should like something, you know, and that just it really it really doesn't doesn't work. But, you know, the research and my 20 years of experience have really shaped how I view this. Um, this rather than focusing on getting kids to eat new foods, rather let them discover new foods, you know, de development through discovery, development through discovery. That's how I approach this because what we want is curiosity, exploration, familiarization with new foods without pressure to try them. That's how children come to enjoy new foods. My favorite thing to do with young children is to get a lettuce knife, you know, those plastic serrated knives that um, you cut lettuce with <laughs> um, and 
get them up on the counter with me and let them cut fruit for a fruit salad or let them chop up the lettuce or let them, you know, cut up a cucumber or whatever and, and make them, you know, feel special and like they're responsible and be a good helper. And, and then just ignore what they do with it because often, you know, they'll get a little juice on their finger and they'll put it in their mouth and taste it. But if, (laughs) but if I jump to the next step and say, Oh, do you want to try some? they're going to back off immediately. And so I just ignore what they're doing. And then they can discover that they like mango or that they like strawberries or whatever it is on their own. And it's, you know, often happens away from the table. So getting kids and getting kids involved in the kitchen is a great strategy. I I also um, have parents take their children with them to grocery stores because children are so intrigued by novelty. And so if we're just walking through the grocery store and looking at things, often kids will want to just try something right off the produce shelf or right off the, the shelf in the box. And it's perfectly okay to just open it right there and then go pay for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because the moment may pass if you wait till you get home. And so that, that curiosity is, is such a crucial element. And so as parents, we want to facilitate that curiosity. And curiosity doesn't happen when there's anxiety and pressure. And so, again, like got to take those off the table so that that curiosity can bloom. I'm working with a little boy who I started seeing a year ago, and he's four very precocious little guy and was extremely anxious when I met them. I mean, huge meltdowns at every meal was just, it was just very difficult for the whole family. And we've been working together over telehealth for the last year. And he is trying so many new things. And he is curious about everything. He made his mom promise that they would get to a party with his cousins early so that he can make sure he watched his cousin eat a hot dog (laughs) because he was so interested because she told him, oh, they're going to eat hot dogs. He said, well, I want to watch him eat it because he he wants to know what it is and he's learning about these foods. And just, just the idea that he's asking about foods is a huge difference than where he was six months ago or a year ago. And that curiosity is where that development happens. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I found that too. When I bring my kids grocery shopping, they always want to pick out a new fruit or a new vegetable Mm -hmm. and it's so helpful and cooking as well. I mean, my Mm -hmm. kids, my kids love to cook and now they're so independent. They can cook, you know, some meals on their own, which is really great. That's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Great for you too. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So this is something new that we're starting on the podcast. I wanted to ask you who you think we should interview on food issues. I really think you should interview my co-author, Katja Rowell. She's an MD, but she, and the, and, and not necessarily about, um, picky eating necessarily, but the, the opposite, which is, um, children who tend to eat more than average or have, or who have larger than average appetites or bodies because that eating competence and health at every size, when we're talking about children, I think is way less understood than it should be. And there's a, you know, big portion of our, um, population who are, are restricting kids foods and putting kids on diets. And we know that that actually doesn't work right. um, and is, is not good for them and is not actually a healthy way to approach it. And so she would be a fabulous person to talk to you about that. Yeah, that's great. I love that. And Jenny, so where can listeners go to get more information about you and your work? So Facebook and Instagram, we're at Extreme Picky Eating Help. 
And Facebook, we have um, a pretty large community of people and we put out, you know, articles and interesting um, discussions and good readings. Um, and then Instagram, obviously we just post lots of um, short little things that parents can take home and, and think about and repost things from uh, people we enjoy listening to. And then we're on Twitter at EPE Help. So Extreme Picky Eating, EPE Help. And then our website is ExtremePickyEating.com. Great. And I will link to that in the show notes. Jenny, thank you so much for your time today. There is a ton of information here. And I also think that there's a very reassuring tone for parents. So I really appreciate your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That was such a great interview with Jenny McLaughlin. I really liked her approach and I hope that you walked away feeling more confident about feeding your kids and hopeful that mealtimes can be peaceful and enjoyable. Make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any of the episodes. If you're already subscribed and you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love it if you could take a second, go into Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating so we can reach more people. I'm Julie Revelant and thank you for listening to Food Issues. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 